Good afternoon, everyone. As human beings, our lives are largely consumed by those things that we think are important at any given time. Often, however, those things that we perceive as so important are really of fleeting significance in the overall scheme of things and will soon be forgotten. Those things that are truly important, however, those things that are of lasting significance are commonly given scant attention. And most people think little about matters which are of much greater significance than what we are often consumed with. Man's destiny, why man was created, is not only a subject about which most people know almost nothing, but it's also a subject to which most people give little thought or concern. As Christians, however, we are instructed by our Master Jesus Christ to make God's kingdom not an afterthought in our lives, but the central focus of our lives. Let's turn over to Matthew 6, and I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with the scripture, but let's take a look at it again. Matthew 6 and verse 25, Jesus said, here in Matthew 6 and verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So he said, do not worry about these things. He didn't say don't give any thought at all to them. But he said, don't worry about it. Don't be anxiously concerned. Don't be consumed with these things, is what he's telling us. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than, the, than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? By worrying about these things, by being consumed with these matters. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So, what, is, what, what Christ is telling us is that we need to get our priorities straight. We should not be consumed with our physical concerns, what we will eat, what we will wear, and so forth. 
Not that, again, not that we should pay no heed to these things. You know, God put the people of Israel, uh, the people of Israel in the land uh, that he had promised them, promised Abraham his descendants would inherit. And he gave to each family an inheritance, a physical inheritance of a piece of land. And they were to work that land. They were to develop that resource. And many of them planted various crops. And they raised livestock. And that was their sustenance. And they had to work hard to provide for their own needs. So that's, that, that's the human condition. We do have to work for, to provide our physical needs. Not, not that all of us are farmers necessarily, but whatever occupation we have, we have to work at it to provide for our physical needs. But the point is we should not neglect things that are even more important than our physical needs. We should not be consumed with and worrying about being provided for if we're doing our part. We need to put God's kingdom first in our lives. We need to seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness, and then the rest will be added to us in the proper order of importance. But we need to focus on God's kingdom daily. We need to have God's kingdom and God's righteousness in the forefront of our minds. God told the people of Israel under the Old Covenant to have God's laws as a frontlet between their eyes. And what that implies is that that, that was to be in the, in the uh, foremost of their thoughts. God's laws were to be in their minds constantly, guiding their conduct, guiding their behavior, but guiding their thoughts. And the same is true of us. He went on to say in verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we need to be concerned with spiritual matters, with the kingdom of God. And that ought to be the central focus of our lives. We're told that Flesh and blood, however, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We will not inherit the kingdom of God in this flesh, in these fleshly bodies. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50, Paul wrote, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, flesh and blood, and that's what each of us are made of physically, or that's what characterizes our nature, from a physical standpoint, our, our bodies are made of flesh and, and our lives are sustained by the blood that courses through our veins. But it says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption. Corruption here refers to decay, the decay that is characteristic of all matter, including our bodies. Corruption does not inherit incorruption. And yet, human beings were created 
with the end, God's kingdom, in mind. The destiny for which God created human beings was to be in his kingdom. Today I want to, in this sermon, discuss man's destiny, go through some scriptures relating to what mankind's destiny is, the destiny pre-planned by God, the destiny for which he creates every human being, the destiny which God has in mind for everyone who is willing to meet his terms, and in particular the destiny that he has in store for us if we remain faithful to him. We who are a part of the body of Christ. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7, Paul wrote, we, meaning the ministry that he represented, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Notice when God ordained this, of which, God, which Paul is speaking. It was before the ages, before the universe itself even began, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now what he's telling us is that the rulers of this age are not aware of this mystery. This, this mystery is something lacking in their knowledge. They do not understand it. They are unaware of it. They are ignorant of it. And also, it has to do, notice, with our glory, he says. And... It says in verse 9, as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Notice, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now, keep in mind that God told the people of Israel and commanded them over and over again, if you read through the scriptures and the law of Moses and so forth, as well as the other books of the Bible, God told the people of Israel that they were to love him. They were to love him. That was one of his commandments. In fact, it was the first commandment. Jesus said that was the first, the most important of all commandments that God gave to the people of Israel was to love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your being, so to speak. And if you keep that commandment, the implication here is that you have a part in something that God has prepared ahead of time for you. Verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now, there are those who tell us that God is so great that we cannot fathom God, that, that we can't understand his nature, and, and, and so they teach a, an idea about God's nature that is unfathomable, and that is, in fact, self, inherently self-contradictory. 
something that is not revealed in the Bible that is contrary to what is taught in the Bible about the nature of God. But they tell us that God is so great and, and his nature is such that we can't really comprehend it or understand it. So we just have to accept on faith the ideas of human beings, their ideas about God's nature. Ideas which are not found in the Bible, by the way, and which are in fact contrary to the Bible. But here it says the Spirit of God searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And Paul is talking about what has been prepared for us. In other words, why we exist, what our destiny is. The destiny that God has prepared for us from the beginning, from even before the universe itself came into existence. And he says that this is a, this is a mystery. It is something that is revealed through God's Spirit but is unknown to most people, including the, the wise of this world, the leaders, the rulers of this world are ignorant of this purpose, this destiny for which human beings exist and which is available to everyone who truly learns to love God, really love God as God intends. We're told that God's kingdom will not be inherited by flesh and blood. Notice over in Colossians chapter 1, however, Colossians 1 and verse 18. Now, Jesus Christ was a human being. He lived on the earth as a human being for about 33 years. And then he died. In Colossians 1 and verse 18, however, it says of Jesus Christ, He is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. Jesus Christ died, but this tells us that He is the firstborn from the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead because he was the first human being to be resurrected into immortality. He wasn't the first human being to be resurrected, by the way. There were others. Even the Old Testament, we read about people who were miraculously raised from the dead. But they were simply resurrected to physical life, and then they died again later. Jesus Christ was resurrected to immortality, to a different type of nature than a flesh and blood human being. In Revelation 1 and verse 5, Revelation 1 and verse 5, the message is being given to John. It says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, uh, again, it says, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There was a purpose for the death of Christ and that was to render salvation possible for us to cleanse us of our sins through his own blood sacrifice. And then Christ was resurrected 
the firstborn from the dead. The fact that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, though, and notice it says firstborn, the fact that it says firstborn implies that there are others to follow, that he is not the only one who will be resurrected in that manner, but he was simply the first one. He was the first one, but he won't be the only one. Because the very term firstborn from the dead implies that there are others to follow. In commenting on this phrase, Revelation 1 and verse 5, A.T. Robertson, who was a scholar of the Greek language, and he wrote a series of commentaries on the New Testament Greek, but he writes in commenting on Revelation 1 and verse 5, the firstborn of the dead, which is the Greek protokos, ton nekron, is a Jewish messianic title, and he refers to Psalm 89 verse 27, and as in Colossians 1 verse 18, refers to priority in the resurrection to be followed by others. Priority in the resurrection to be followed by others. And that is the implication of this term firstborn from the dead. Coming on, commenting on this same verse, the Expositor's Bible commentary says, the Father has raised Christ from the beginning. This is a quote from the Expositor's Bible commentary. The Father has raised Christ from the dead, pledging him as the first of a great company who will follow. Pledging him as the first of a great company who will follow. So what the Bible teaches is that just as Christ was resurrected to immortality from the dead, there will be others who will be resurrected in like manner. Notice in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Romans 6 and verse 5, it says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, now Paul is writing here about baptism, conversion and baptism, and baptism is in a symbolic way typical of death and then a resurrection to a newness of life. And there is, are actually multiple realities that are symbolized by baptism, but one of those realities is the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection from the grave to eternal life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, speaking of baptism, when you go under the water into, as it were, a watery grave, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So when you undergo the rite of baptism, then you are in a symbolic way, joining with Christ in death and are 
putting yourself in the position of being eligible to be resurrected later on, just as Christ was resurrected from the dead. And that is part of what, what a part of what is symbolized by baptism. In Romans 8 and verse 11, 8, Romans 8 and verse 11, it says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you, or which dwells in you as it should be. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the same Spirit by which he resurrected Jesus Christ. In chapter 8 and verse 16 of Romans, verse 16, it says the Spirit himself or itself as it should be bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That we are children of God. Now, it's interesting how Jesus Christ habitually spoke of his relationship with God when he was uh, on earth as a human being. He constantly referred to God as his Father. He referred to God as his Father. He talked about God being his Father and himself being God's Son. So it was a family relationship. God the Father and His Son was Jesus Christ. And we are told numerous times in the New Testament especially that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. But this says that the Spirit bears, bears witness with our spirit that we too are children of God. In other words, we have also entered into that family relationship with God. The same kind of relationship that Jesus Christ has with God the Father. We are his sons. And it goes on to say, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now under the economy of the scriptures in the Old Testament, property was passed on from father to son, from, from father to children, commonly, or from parents to their children. And it's pretty much the same way in our society today. Now, the government that we have has sort of perverted that concept and Often the government itself takes a large part of the, any inheritance. But under God's system, the inheritance belonged to the children of the deceased. And it says, We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So we are to be glorified together with Christ. Now, this idea of being glorified is important for us to understand what that means because when Christ was resurrected, he was not resurrected with the same nature that he bore when he died. He, he was resurrected 
into a different kind of nature, a higher nature. He was he was he died a human being. He was resurrected as a glorified son of God. No longer subject to death. No longer sub subject to the infirmities and weaknesses of human beings. He was resurrected to divine power and glory. Radiant. Radiating with power and glory. And it says that we will also be glorified together with him. In other words, we will share in his glory. In his nature. In his power. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, said Paul. So we are destined to be resurrected into the same type of glorified state which characterizes Jesus Christ in, in the resurrection. In verse 29, in verse 29, it says, For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now we read uh, earlier that Jesus Christ was the firstborn from the dead. And so this again relates to Jesus' status as the firstborn. But he is to be the firstborn among many brethren. This tells us plainly that Jesus Christ is to be succeeded by many others in this being born, as it were, as it is characterized here. And he was born, so to speak, from the grave. This is an analogy. It is a metaphor. Birth being used as a metaphor for the resurrection. And it says that whom... God foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son to become like Jesus Christ. To become like Jesus Christ. They were predestined. That, that was the destiny that God established for them from the beginning. And who was it established for? Those that he foreknew. And there is no one whom God did not foreknow both Jews and Gentiles, Israelites and Gentiles alike. And I've explained this more in detail in other sermons. This is a subject that is very commonly misunderstood, the idea of predestination, and it's often distorted and perverted to make it into something that it is not. But it simply tells us what the destiny is for which God created human beings in the first place. And every human has this destiny available to him to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is why we were created, to become like Christ in the, his glorified state. Jesus, when, when he was brought before the Sanhedrin on charges, was finally condemned to death on the charge of blasphemy and the Jews considered blasphemy a crime, a sin, deserving the penalty of death. Notice in John 10, 
What was the blasphemy that Jesus committed? John 10 and verse 31. It says, John 10 verse 31, The Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Notice how he referred to God here as his Father. The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy... And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Notice that they accused him of blasphemy because he said that God was his father and he was the son of God. Notice in Matthew 26, Matthew 26 and verse 63, here Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin and two false witnesses were brought to testify against him as it says in the previous verse in verse 61 it says this fellow said I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days this was their testimony and the high priest arose and said to him do you answer nothing what is it that these men testify against you but Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him I put you under oath by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. Now notice the question here put forth to Jesus was, tell us if you are the Christ. The Christ means, are you the Messiah? The equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah, anglicized, the anglicized version is Messiah. The equivalent Greek word is Christos, which is anglicized as Christ. So he's asking, are you the promised Messiah, the Messiah that is written about in book after book, chapter after, after chapter of the Old Testament? The very Messiah that the Jews were looking for at that time. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? The Son of God. Now, you need to understand that the Jews understood the Messiah as being God. They understood that the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah as God, uses names and titles of God in reference to the Messiah, that the Messiah sits at the right hand of God, so that there were actually, God was a duality, that is, there were two persons in the Godhead. This is clearly revealed in the Old Testament especially in those scriptures that discuss the, the Messiah and speak of him as God. And this concept of the Messiah as the Son of God itself implies that the Messiah was God. The, the, you, if you read in the Old Testament, you'll read about people being trained as prophets and they are referred to as sons of the prophets. And what that meant is that they were, in fact, prophets. A son of, the, of a prophet, as the term was used, was a prophet. And the term son doesn't always necessarily mean that, but often it does. And the term son of God, a son of God in this context, implied that the person making claim to this title was in fact God. And Jesus said to him, 
It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this also would apply to the Messiah. This is a prophecy referring to prophecies from the Old Testament about the Messiah. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What was his blasphemy? Because he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. That was the blasphemy for which he was condemned. Now, if he had been lying... If he had been making those claims falsely, it would indeed have been blasphemy. The only way that this would not have been blasphemy is if he was telling the truth. If he was, in fact, really the Messiah, otherwise he would have been lying, and he would have been, in fact, blaspheming God. But we believe that he was telling the truth, and we believe that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah that he did fulfill the prophecy, some of them, of the Old Testament relating to the Messiah during his earthly sojourn, and that he will fulfill other prophecies, is fulfilling other prophecies now, and will fulfill more of those prophecies later on. But he was condemned, among other things, or you might say especially for saying that he was the Son of God, which, in a sense, made him equal with God. Now, what we are teaching is that the Bible tells us that as human beings we were created with the potential of becoming God's sons just as Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that we were created to become like Jesus Christ as we just read that we were created for that very purpose as Paul wrote we should not be surprised if teaching that there will be those have been those who accuse us of blasphemy because we say that human beings who are converted who have the spirit of God who are faithful to God will one day be resurrected from the dead and in a metaphorical sense born into the family of God as sons of God bearing the nature and likeness of God, just as Jesus Christ himself does. And in that sense, actually being God. In the same sense that the son of a human being is a human being. Not that we will ever be as great as the Father, because we won't. We will never have his status in, in the sense that he is the supreme being and the the chief authority over all creation we're not going to kick God off of his throne but we are going to be his sons if we are in his kingdom and we will be like him and we will share his nature according to scripture and to many to say that is blasphemy just as when Jesus Christ implied in his comments that he was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, that he was condemned for blasphemy. 
Notice in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, this is saying the same thing that we read earlier, that he was the firstborn from the dead, only here it is using the term first fruits instead of firstborn, virtually the same meaning in the sense of what it's conveying here. And it says he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first one to have been resurrected in the way that he was resurrected. Again, not that he was the first to be raised from the dead, but the first to be raised to glory, to the, to the glorious state that he now enjoys. In verse 22, it says, For an Adam all die, that is, if we are descendants of Adam, we have his nature, and we will die just as he died. We are mortal beings, is what it's saying, as, as children of Adam, as his descendants. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Those who are converted in this age and who remain faithful, and that includes the Old Testament patriarchs and others who were faithful from the time of Adam to this day and to the time of Christ's coming, those will be resurrected at that time into the likeness of Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And this tells us what the final conclusion is as God works out his plan for, for mankind to, to place sons in his kingdom. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. In other words, everything that opposes God. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Because those who are resurrected, in that resurrection, the first resurrection, and all who are eventually changed into the likeness of God to the likeness of Jesus Christ will be immortal and not subject to death. The last thing to be destroyed is death, and that will come at the end, the conclusion of God's plan and purpose for mankind. There will be those cast into the lake of fire at that time who will, and that will be put an end to death as far as human beings are concerned. In verse 47, it says, The first man was of the earth made of dust. This is verse 47. The first man, this speaking of Adam, was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Showing that Adam, in a sense, is a type of Christ, although different. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As we just read, we share Adam's nature. And as, the, as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So, in other words, if we are of Adam, 
we share his nature. If we are of Christ, we share his nature. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And, well, let's go on with verse 51. We read verse 50 earlier. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So those who are resurrected at the time of Christ's coming will put on immortality, will be raised immortal with a different nature, the nature and likeness and likeness of Jesus Christ. And they will share the glory of Christ and have a body, have bodies, I should say, like his glorious body. Notice in, Philipp in, in Philippians 3, Philippians 3 and verse 21, well, let's pick up the context in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, looking forward to his coming again to the earth. And we just read that when he comes again, will, there will occur the first resurrection. And Paul is referring to that here. It says in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So we will be given bodies if we're in the resurrection like that of Jesus Christ. Immortal bodies, not subject to death. Glorious bodies, radiant with the glory reminiscent of the noonday sun. We will share in the nature of God as Jesus Christ himself does now. Notice in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, let's go back to verse 2 to pick up the context. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. When we are made incorruptible and immortal, it says we will be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature, that means we will share in the nature of God. We will have the, no longer the nature of Adam, as Paul explained in the scripture we read in 1 Corinthians 15, but we will have the nature and likeness of God. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, 
Now this information has been here in the scriptures all along, but it is not something that most people have been told or taught. They have been taught lies, frankly, about an immortal soul and going to heaven when one dies or to hell to be tortured forever. But they have not been taught the truth about what the Bible says about human destiny and how and when that will be accomplished. But this is what the scripture teaches. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God. Now we are children of God. We are already children in, in a limited sense if we are converted and have the Spirit of God, even as human beings, in one sense, we're children of God, but especially if we're converted, we have become children of God, even in a spiritual sense. But John went on to write, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What John is saying is that being revealed, in other words, we haven't really fully experienced what it, it's like, what, what, it, what we will be like, but we do know this. This much has been revealed. When he is revealed, that is when Christ is revealed from heaven, we shall be like him, or we shall be, see him as he is. We will be like Christ when he is revealed from heaven. These, are, these scriptures plainly tell us that we, in the resurrection, will become like Jesus Christ and that we will bear the nature of God as sons of God. Why do so many who claim to be Christian want to ignore such clear statements of scripture? and deny that God has such a glorious destiny in store for mankind. And there are many who would claim that we are teaching heresy and blasphemy for explaining these scriptures. But I didn't make I didn't put these scriptures in the Bible. And you can decide if this is what the Bible actually teaches or not. You can just read it for yourself. God offers us the gift of eternal life. Mark chapter 10 and verse 30. Mark 10 and verse 30. Jesus is telling us here the rewards of those who follow him faithfully, sacrificing for him, forsaking even their own families if necessary in order to follow Christ. In verse 30 it says, uh, well, let's, let's go back to verse 29. It says, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. By this is why this isn't a license to abandon your family responsibilities but if necessary 
for the sake of the gospel, and some people have endured this kind of experience for the sake of the gospel. There are those who have become converted and been divorced by their mates because they decided to follow Christ. Their children taken away from them because they followed Christ. They've even lost property and, and so forth. This has happened in people's everyday experience. Not everybody, but some people. But in verse 30, he says, that There will not be any of those who suffer in that manner for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus Christ, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. In the age to come eternal life. And there are a number of other scriptures that tell us that we're promised eternal life if we are faithful to God. Have you ever thought about what that means? What does it mean? What does this promise mean to have eternal life? William Barclay wrote in his book, New Testament Words, he was a theologian and a scholar of the Greek language, the New Testament, and he wrote a book called New Testament Words where he goes into depth explaining how certain words are used in the New Testament. One of the words that he discusses in his book, New Testament Words, is Ionios, which is the Greek word for eternal. Ionios. And he discusses the use of that word in connection with eternal life. And he wrote this statement in his book in discussing the word Ionios or eternal. Eternal life is nothing less than the life of God himself, he wrote. Eternal life is nothing less than the life of God himself. What that tells us is that when we are promised eternal life, we are promised a share in the life of God himself. And what that tells us is that we are sharing in the very nature of God because God is eternal. God is eternally and inherently alive. One of, one of the names for God, one of the primary names for, for God is Yahweh, which means the ever-living, the eternal one. And we are destined to share in that eternal existence, that eternal life that is the life of God. Barclay went on to write, 
of the word ionios used in the New Testament for eternal life. Life is of value when it is nothing less than the life of God. And that is the meaning of eternal life. And he went on to say the ultimate destiny of the Christian is a life which is none other than the life of God himself. Which is none other than the life of God himself. I'm not sure that Barclay himself understood the gravity of what he wrote, but he was writing about what this word eternal means in the connection with eternal life in the New Testament. The ultimate destiny of a Christian is a life which is none other than the life of God himself. That's what it means to be given eternal life. It means to be given the life of God himself. A man named Irenaeus was a church leader in the second century A.D. He died about 200 A.D. Irenaeus had been affected by the corruption of truth that characterized the professing Christian churches of his era. But in some areas of doctrine, his understanding remained fairly sound. He was a product of the so-called school of Asia Minor. Asia Minor was the area where the Apostle John and Polycarp ministered. The influence of John and other of the original apostles of the first century remained strong in Asia Minor. Long after pervasive Hellenistic influences had displaced genuine biblical truth. Even in the fourth century, most of the Christians in Asia Minor were still keeping the Passover on the 14th of Nisan. In fact, that was one of the main subjects discussed at the Council of Nicaea and the practice of keeping the Passover on the 14th was condemned at that council with specific reference to the people in Asia Minor and some other surrounding areas that were still keeping it at that time. And there are other evidences that they were continuing, many Christians in that area were continuing to be faithful to the word of God, at least in many respects. And we heard about some of those Hellenistic influences which crept into the church beginning actually even in the first century but especially in the second century and afterward in the sermonette. But the influence of John and other original apostles remained strong enough in Asia Minor that they were able to resist for a long period of time those influences. While Hellenistic influences had displaced genuine biblical truth many other places in the Roman Empire. Polycarp had been a disciple of John. He knew John. John reportedly baptized Polycarp and ordained him into the ministry. And Polycarp was a principal leader of the church in Asia Minor from the latter part of the first century until his death sometime in the mid-2nd century A.D. Irenaeus had been a student of Polycarp, and Irenaeus wrote a 
long volume called Against Heresies, where he was discussing various heretical ideas which had arisen among Christians. And so there is a lot in his book called Against Heresies discussing various theological ideas and concepts of the Bible as well as false concepts that were being promulgated by heretics. Polycarp taught that the divine plan was for man to become like God. J.L. Neve wrote a history of Christian thought discussing the history of the early church and in his book he said in answer to the question why did God become human Irenaeus said in order that we might become gods that is godlike why did God become human in order that we might become gods that, that is godlike this is from the history of Christian thought by Neve now you won't find that exact statement at least I've not been able to find it in any of the writings of Irenaeus, but what it is is probably a paraphrase of a statement Irenaeus made. And here is what he actually wrote. He wrote, For it was for this end that the word of God was made man, and he who was the Son of God became the Son of Man. That man having been taken into the word and receiving the adoption, or as it could be the sonship, might become the son of God. The word of God became man so that man could become the son of God. In the same context, Irenaeus wrote of the potential for humans for promotion into God. Promotion into God, as he put it. Actually, as it's translated from the Greek. He also wrote, we have, I believe it's Greek that he wrote in, possibly Latin, but I think it was Greek. He also wrote, we have not been made gods from the beginning, but at first merely men, then at length gods. We are made men from the beginning, but at length gods. This is what Irenaeus taught, and he. this is what his belief was about what the Bible teaches about human destiny, that we are to become like God. We are to be promoted, so to speak, into God. We are to be at length, as it were, gods. Actually, this is in the Bible, too. In fact, Jesus Christ himself said this. Hippolytus, a man named Hippolytus, who died about 236 A.D., was a student of Irenaeus, and he also wrote in a book that he wrote called Discourse on the Holy Theophany, he wrote, If therefore man has become immortal, he will also be God. If man has become immortal he will also be God. Not that he necessarily believed that men had become immortal yet, but would be later on in the future. 
And when that happens, he will be God, as it were. Now, we need to understand what this means. Again, it doesn't mean we're going to kick the Father off his throne. It doesn't mean that we will ever be as great as Jesus Christ in the sense that he fills certain offices that we will never fill, such as high priest and the Savior of all mankind and so forth. But we will be like him. We will have his nature. We will be the sons of God in the same way that Jesus Christ is if we are in God's kingdom, if we are immortal. And this understanding, remnants of which survived for more than a century after the apostles had died, eventually became all but completely suppressed in the professing Christian world under the weight of massive heresy and apostasy. If you studied church history, you probably, if you, if you studied it with an open mind and with any discernment, you probably realize that Christianity, as many historians have pointed out, changed profoundly in the second century into something grotesquely different from what it had been originally. It was not the same religion. It was a vastly different religion and one that had been utterly transformed through the adoption of heathen philosophy and religious concepts over a period of several hundred years the trinity doctrine replaced the biblical teaching of god's nature concerning god's nature in the bible as we've seen god is pictured as a family and we read constantly of the relationship, the family relationship between Jesus Christ and the Father in the New Testament. And we see that in the New Testament especially, this is implied in the Old Testament, but especially explained in greater detail in the New Testament, that God's plan is to add children to his family to add sons to his family through conversion and regeneration of human beings but in the trinity doctrine the godhead is closed and becoming like god in the biblical sense is rendered impossible by that doctrine it obscures and obviates the possibility of fulfilling what God's purpose is for human beings according to the scriptures it, it obscures it completely erases from our consciousness the real purpose for which God created human beings to become like Christ and like God in the fullest sense possible now what you have to do then perhaps if you've grown up believing the Trinity doctrine and that's your concept of God you have to step back and take a look at what the scriptures actually teach about human destiny and the purpose of mankind and the relationship 
between Jesus Christ and the Father and what the Bible says about God's nature. Might do well to study the Trinity too and its history and how it actually became a Christian doctrine. And, and even the adherence to the Trinity admit that the Trinity was not actually an original doctrine of the church that it gradually became a doctrine over a period of several hundred years and is actually about the fourth century before it became generally accepted. By the time Herbert Armstrong, founder of the Worldwide Church of God, arrived on the scene in the early 1930s when he began his ministry on the radio, even most people among Sabbath-keeping churches had lost sight of the biblical teaching concerning man's destiny. And Mr. Armstrong himself did not understand the biblical teaching for quite some time after he had begun his ministry. But eventually it became clear to him what the Bible taught about this matter of man's ultimate destiny. Under Mr. Armstrong's leadership, that knowledge, most of it, was restored to the Church of God and proclaimed to the world. After Mr. Armstrong's death in the mid-80s, his successors led a massive apostasy in the Worldwide Church of God and did everything in their power to suppress and destroy the knowledge of the true biblical teaching regarding man's destiny. However, this facet of the message concerning God's kingdom is emphatically taught in this church and will be as long as I'm involved in the teaching, God willing. In this church, the messenger church of God, we teach what the Bible teaches about this truth. And hopefully we'll be able to spread this knowledge everywhere before Christ's return. At least we will, we will hopefully make it available to whoever is prepared to listen and to be taught from God's word. We don't expect anybody to believe us because we say this is the way it is. What we encourage anyone to do who is challenged by these concepts, what we encourage anyone to do, period, really, is to study God's word, to become familiar with the scriptures which we've rehearsed and reviewed today and learn more, pray about it, ask God to give you the understanding of his word and of why you were created as a human being. Over in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation 2 and verse 26, Jesus said to the church, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Notice he said, keeps my works to the end, overcomes. I will give power to the nations, or over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I have received from my Father. What this tells us, and other scriptures tell us, is that the faithful will share rulership over the nations with Christ in the resurrection. Jesus Christ is coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will, when Jesus Christ returns the second time, he will return as an all-conquering king, and he will put 
under subjection his enemies and he will be king of the earth the ruler of all mankind the ruler of all nations and those who are in the first resurrection with Christ sharing in the likeness of Christ with his nature his mind his righteousness will share in administering his government they will work under his authority to administer government over the earth if we want to have part in that as we read here with the help of God's spirit we must be overcoming we must be overcoming our fleshly nature we must be becoming renewed spiritually and refashioned spiritually into the image of Jesus Christ now if we're in the resurrection we will bear the image of Christ but we ought to be in the process now of being changed spiritually undergoing a spiritual transformation a transformation in our minds to become more like Christ notice in Romans 12 Romans 12 and verse 1 says I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to God which is your reasonable service and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God we are to be in a process of transformation becoming like Christ in the way we think and behave in Colossians 3 and verse 12 Colossians 3 and verse 10 rather says that we are to have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him we're to put on the new man the we are to be renewed in knowledge that's our brains according to the image of him who created him we're to be becoming like Christ in our minds in the way we think in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord what this is saying is that as we study God's word with spiritual understanding understanding granted to us through the spirit of God we catch a glimpse of what God is like what Christ is like because it says like a mirror beholding the glory of the Lord this speaking of the word of God as we study it and that same word helps transform us through the spirit of God working in us in conjunction with his word into the same image in other words we are to be in this process through Bible study and prayer and applying God's laws we're to be in a process of transformation into the likeness of Christ 
And that process will be completed in the resurrection when we are completely changed into the likeness of Christ. In Colossians 1 and verse 26, Colossians 1 and verse 26, as the the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations has now been revealed to his saints, to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ dwelling in us is our hope that we will be glorified in the resurrection, having Christ dwelling in us, living his life in us. To that end, we must be yielding to Christ, repenting of our sins, allowing Christ to reshape us after his nature and likeness. And if we do that, and if we continue to do it faithfully to the end, we will fulfill the destiny for which we were made.